I see many organizations that continue to finance their operations on borrowed money. And eventually you're going to have to pay that back. Just like, you know, all of us as private right. you know, individuals, it, it's the same, it's the same concept. So when we talk about surpluses, we look at revenues and expenses, but I want to make sure I have more cash coming in than going out at any given time. You're listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast, brought to you by KevKayat.com. Kev helps nonprofit leaders deliver more impact faster and easier, so they can be mission accomplished in 40 hours a week or less. For more information, visit KevKayat.com. Because good causes deserve better results. Now... Here is the host of Nonprofit Problem Solver, Kev Kayat. Hello, Kev Kayat here. Welcome to Nonprofit Problem Solver, brought to you by Yachtme, the virtual events platform 100% free to nonprofits, and PodPro Audio, making professional podcasting easy. Thanks for tuning in. Just to be clear, you are actually the Nonprofit Problem Solver. As host, my job is to extract from our guests the practical, tactical expertise that you can put straight into action. This is a recording of a live event hosted on Yachtme. Find out more at y.yacht.me. That's W-H-Y dot Y-O-T dot M-E. You can join me on these live events every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific. Register at yacht.me or nonprofitproblemsolver.com. And you can find me, Kev Kayak, at kevkayak.com as well as on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Clubhouse. Join the Nonprofit Problem Solver Club on Clubhouse and the Nonprofit Problem Solver Facebook group to get all of the latest practical, tactical advice on being the best nonprofit entrepreneur you can be. And check out my coaching programs at nonprofitentrepreneur.com. Let's admit it, folks. We in nonprofits have a money problem. No, not the one you're thinking of as in not enough money, but not enough talking about money and money management. Today, we address that with Tasha Anderson, whose rapidly growing accounting firm works only with nonprofits. Were you aware that major donors review your tax forms to see how financially viable you are? That means being on top of your cash flow, your cash reserves, and your accounts receivable. And if that sounds intimidating, help us here in the form of the charity CFO, Tasha Anderson. Welcome, everyone, to the Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast. Uh, today, I am joined by accountant Tasha Anderson, who works exclusively with nonprofits. So I'm excited mm-hmm. to jump into that conversation. But before we do, uh, let me just say uh, uh, thank you to uh, sponsors of Yachtme, which is this virtual events platform as well as PodPro Audio, who makes professional podcasting easy. So mm-hmm. the way this works is that we will, for the next 40, 45 minutes or so, do this uh, live podcast recording. It's sort of a main event window. If you're watching live, this is what you can see. If you're watching the replay, this is what you can see. Yeah. Uh, after about 45 minutes, we'll uh, skip from, uh, move from main event to what we call mingle mode, and that's where this uh, amazing Yachtme platform recreates the tables that you might see at a, at a gala event. And for those who have a few minutes to hang out afterwards, get to go backstage, really, uh, and we can have a conversation uh, with Tasha and myself. Uh, so in the meantime, however, if you would like to throw qu- comments into the chat, there is a, um, a sort of crowd icon to, to the left on the on the bar the the bar that's on the right the leftmost icon is the group chat uh, and if you throw anything in there we will um, try and pick it up during our conversation. So hello Tasha, how are you? Hi Kev, it's great to be here and I'm doing quite well. Excellent, excellent. Okay, so tell us a little bit about uh, you and your background and how you got into. Yeah. Uh, what it is you're doing, and you, the amazing success you've had over the last couple of years in, yeah. in building a nonprofit exclusive accounting practice. Yeah. So I love this question because most people that end up in this space never plan on ending up in this space. It certainly wasn't my ambition when I was in business school. Uh, I never, I never could have imagined I would have ended up here. Uh, so a little bit about my background. I went to business school, got my accounting degree, ended up in public accounting, as most accountants do. Uh, during that time, I was auditing nonprofits, which were, frankly, the most challenging clients we had. 
And honestly, many of the accountants did not want to work with a nonprofit group, uh, not because the clients weren't great and the missions were amazing, but really their books were really, really messy, which made it difficult for ambitious young professionals to get promoted and get bonuses and raises and those sort of things. So I saw it as an opportunity to uh, elevate my career through promotions by actually taking a position in that group. I took the job really no one else wanted, but I fell in love with the businesses uh, and the missions and most importantly, the people. So I did that for about six or seven years and actually uh, really reinvented the, the way that the group operated and changed the kind of generalization stereotype that nonprofits can't be effective and efficient. So that was really exciting. But after that, I decided there's such a talent shortage in this space for accountant and financial minded people that focus exclusively on nonprofits or that want to work in this space. Again, not because of the mission, but frankly, it's generally financially driven, right? And so more people needed to commit their talents and efforts into working with a nonprofit group. So I decided to take a job as a CFO of a nonprofit. I actually did that for about four years pretty large organization and out of survival, I'd like to toot my own horn, but really it's out of survival. I did all the accounting and finance and all other administrative duties kind of as a sign. So HR, IT, facilities, all of the things you would expect. Uh, so more like a COO, uh, chief exactly. operating officer type role. Yeah. It combines finance, so, HR, IT, uh, yes. negotiating leases, I bet, you know, things Absolutely. like that. Absolutely. Negotiating <laughs> program contracts, those sort of things. So, of okay. course, in these roles, which is not a surprise to anyone listening, those folks get hired for their accounting background. But to be honest with you, in many cases, as was mine, an overwhelming majority of the time that I was spending was on all other you know, duties besides accounting, which is what my background was. So I was able to pare down the accounting in about 15 hours a week for a $6 million organization, which, again, was out of survival, mostly. Uh, and, uh, during that time, you know, I, I worked for an organization that was about $6 million, but we were getting funded by a really diverse, you know, group of funders, right? Lots of government contracts, state, local, federal level. At the same time, I was also, you know, colleagues with organizations that were much smaller than me, but funded by the same, you know, sources, right? So their compliance, mm -hmm. and their reporting and their accounting needs were exactly the same. They just didn't have a $6 million budget to pay someone like me. So they were looking for the part-time bookkeeper that could help kind of, you know, get things moving and, and hopefully keep them in compliance. But in reality, that just wasn't cutting it for them and they had nowhere else to turn. So I decided to leave my job, uh, the full-time job, and start my own practice with the expectation. Um, Kev, I told people this, my, my aspirations were leaving a really high intense, you know, uh, career in public accounting. I, I don't know what I was thinking, but I wasn't thinking clearly thinking working for a nonprofit might be less intense, maybe, which we know that is not the case, right? Sorry, so I, I just have to stop and laugh at that one. <laughs> right, right. So two back-to-back yeah. -back really um, high-stress jobs, lot, very yeah. taxing, right? Yeah. And um, I had a one-year-old at the time. So I had these dreams and aspirations world entertain me with this idea of working you know part-time you know really I'm, I'm gonna wear my yoga pants and have champagne brunches with my girlfriends during the day or whatever who knows um that lasted about two months and more nonprofits reached out and needed help and so uh i ended up taking on more clients and i could frankly i couldn't say no i know how desperate they were in but at the same time, I had accountants reaching out, hey, I hate my corporate job. I'm tired of making rich people richer. How can I work with these missions? P.S. I have to feed my family. So like, how do I make this work? And I don't really know their accounting, right? So I thought, if I teach you, you can help me help these people. So that's kind of how things got started. That was five years ago. Now we have a team of 15 uh, that we only work with nonprofits. So um, and most of our clients kind of deal with a lot of that balance between things are getting bigger, things are getting more complex. We don't know, we don't know, but we know we need something. Uh, and we need to make sure I's are dotted and T's are crossed because we get audited, whether it's by an independent firm or by our funders or a combination of both. So that's mm -hmm. a little bit about my background. So definitely coming from an operational side and audit side. And now uh, we serve a little over 80 clients nationwide. So yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so do you Good. work across the U.S.? Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, in all states? Uh, um, yeah, mostly. You know, it's interesting. Um, you know, we're housed and headquartered in St. Louis. That's where I was born and mm -hmm. raised. My whole team's here. 
Um, and it wasn't intentional. We were going to be nationwide or focused in St. Louis. But as you would imagine, things are really expensive along the coast. And so we do have quite a few nonprofits that are trying to be cost effective that really find our pricing much more competitive. So we have a lot of clients along kind of the U-shaped, right? Um, some of the right, more high right. cost of living, uh, high population density areas. So kind of sprinkled all over. Yeah. And, and, and that tends to reflect the geography of nonprofits anyway. You know, the, the, yeah. there are, there are more on the coasts, you know, certainly the, the Atlantic Absolutely. seaboard and then on, on, certainly on the West coast as well. Yeah. Um, okay. So how do people find you online? They find me generally through social media, um, different online platforms. There's not a whole lot of accountants that may or may not surprise you, Kev, that focus on this area. And there's not a whole lot of accountants that speak in a way that people want to listen or can even follow along. We, we uh, us accounts tend to be right. really jargony. So uh, people generally hear me through um, a podcast or otherwise. But if you, um, if this is the first time kind of hearing about the work, Certainly going to our website, the firm's name is The Charity CFO. So just go to www.thecharitycfo.com or follow us on any social media platform. Uh, that's also the easiest way to get a hold of us. And, and the, and the, the uh, social media handle is the, the Charity CFO and or your own? Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Okay. And what, what, are the best, uh, what are the best platforms? Is it LinkedIn, Facebook? Which, which do you like to use? You know... Interestingly, I LinkedIn is where I meet a lot of connections, but Facebook, honestly, uh, we also have a podcast where I try to interview different people uh, in the space that I've worked with, especially around HR issues and IT issues and investing issues. Nobody wants to hear an accountant talk all day long, so I try to get a variety of other people. Um, so really, Facebook, we, we, of course, load a lot of content, um, free training, we have weekly, um, biweekly webinars that we host just to help uh, kind of coach, sm especially smaller nonprofits through some of these focus areas that they may not have skill set in. So and, yeah, and Facebook where are those? So are those weekly trainings in Facebook? Uh, we, we market them in, uh, on our Facebook page. So go to the charity CFO Facebook page and you'll see the links to register, but we house it on zoom just to make it an easier platform. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, okay. and also our YouTube channel. So we take excerpts from those conversations and we load them up on YouTube. So we're everywhere. Just Google. <laughs> we're, we try to be everywhere and, and easily yeah, found yeah. for anybody that needs and an answer to some of these questions. And because uh, this is a slightly, slightly different situation, you know, I mean, I often interview coaches and consultants who, who have training programs and, and that sort of stuff. So you do mm -hmm. uh, uh, the free webinars every other week, but yep. you also then obviously take on clients. So you've got to, you said mm -hmm. 80 across the country. Is yeah. there, a, can you just tell, tell people briefly what that process looks like? Have they reached out to you? Do you do, how do you assess whether they're a good fit for you or not? Yeah, so actually, I I guess now would be a good time to do a shameless plug of something I don't even think I've mentioned to you uh, before. I, I don't think There's so. no so, shame you know, in plugging. I actively <laughs> invite you to, to share with um, people how to uh, benefit from your expertise. Yeah, so, you know, there's, uh, you know, depending on what site you look at, about 1.7 million nonprofits out there. 80% of those I've read recently or 1.4 million or less than 250,000 in annual budgets a year. So what that tells me is generally less than 250, uh, it may not make sense to hire an outside accountant. It's just cost prohibitive, right? And so the people that we generally work with up until this point have been those that can afford to pay us on an ongoing monthly retainer. So they hire us to function as their accounting department, if you will. Uh, we don't get into short-term contracts, interim work, consulting work. Um, we're quite different in that sense because it takes so much energy and effort to really familiarize ourselves with all of the yeah. nuances of their accounting um, only for them to kind of start, stop, start, stop with us. We just, right. we just so the don't work, work is the work in the, the work relationship is very front loaded. There's a lot mm -hmm. to get your head around and it only makes exactly. sense if you've got a longer term relationship. Exactly. So okay. I, uh, so historically people go to our website, Hey, I lost my bookkeeper. I have a volunteer. I, I volunteer is not working anymore. Um, or I have a firm, I'm not happy with them, something like that. Uh, they will uh, reach out to us and, you know, we go through the onboarding process. The expectation is we work, you know, ongoing uh, and it kind of works like that. And I can talk a little bit more about what that looks like if we're interested. However, what I found was an incredibly large group of people out there 
that fall under that $250,000 mark, they definitely still had um, some sort of problem or multiple problems within their accounting and finance that they need solved. They just had nowhere to turn. And I can't tell you how many conversations I've had. You know, Tasha, I've reached out to four or five different CPAs. You're the only one that calls me back. Or I talk to my CPA and they tell me they don't really deal with nonprofit accounting. They don't really know anything. Uh, so I, I really empathize with this group because they have an expectation from the IRS or their state, their local, their funders to adhere to whatever it is, compliance, best practices, whatever, but they really have nowhere to turn to find out how to even do that, how to get started, how to educate themselves. So yeah. that's when we, a couple things, we started doing these weekly webinars or, you know, bi-weekly webinars. And we really focus it on, let's kind of identify some of my FAQs. Like what are the main questions I get? And we'll do little um, kind of intros on that topic. But then it also opens up to open kind of Q&A because most people out there, it doesn't make sense for them to hire me ongoing. But we just want to use our platform to help small nonprofits find answers or at least point them in the right direction where they can find answers to some of these problems that they have that no one else seems to be able to help them with. So um, in hearing enough of that, there is a common theme of a lot of kind of ongoing problems. So we've gone ahead and developed a course. This is a shameless plug. Um, we've developed a course that's in production right now. The content is ready. It's sitting with the developers now and making it pretty and polished up. But the mm. idea is that a couple things, my two focus areas, which um, Tasha, my board or myself as a founder and CEO, we need to get some sort of just baseline training on really nonprofit accounting, um, some of the lingo and how to relay the differences between for-profit and nonprofit accounting. I get that request to do a lot of training on that and speaking. So I thought, why don't I just put it in a free course and people can right. use it for board orientation or um, you know, whatever they need to use it for. But it's totally free. So that's coming, hopefully, in the next 30 days or so. And then to right. expand upon that, okay, Tasha, now that I have a foundation, I can't afford you yet, um, but I need to do this myself. And whether you're a board treasurer or a volunteer or the founder or whatever, but I need someone to help me. And there's some books out there. No one has the time if you're working a full-time job and launching this nonprofit to sit down and pour through books. Um, so I've created a whole right. video library on how to get your tax return filed, your 990N, how to set up your accounting system, how to use it in a very basic way. And I really wow. just went through all the major steps. So that's coming as well. Again, hopefully to help, you know, this 80% of our nonprofit group or, you know, yeah. the population. I, I get these so. questions all the time, you know, and, yeah. I, and, you know, and I, and I, and I refer them to people like you, there are people you need to speak to. It's not me. Uh, generally yes. speaking, I tell people to, to find someone locally who knows their mm -hmm. state laws and their, you know, and some of the nuances, mm -hmm. maybe has a relationship with, with other mm -hmm. people locally that can help. Um, yeah. but, but you're right. It is, it is such a, 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 a big need. The problem with, with the, in theory, that sounds great. Find someone local and um, they can help you. The challenge, of course, the nonprofits start as they start calling and uh, non, uh, these CPA firms might say, well, that's going to cost you $5,000 to do that. Or, you know, it may be only have a $500 budget. Most firms are just not going to be willing to take on that project. And there's not enough people um, that just specialize in those sort of things. Um, or even if there is kind of a independent contractor that might be able to set those things up, it's, it's like, how do you find them? Right. And so right. it's really difficult for nonprofits to find that solution. So I thought, is there a way I can just teach them how to do it themselves? Um, and is that second course goal. also free? It's not. It's a really low price point. It's twenty nine dollars. About six hours worth of right. content. I try to keep it really okay. high level on purpose. Uh, but the goal is that they would then be able to hop on our biweekly calls and you know get questions, troubleshoot, you know any other follow up questions. Excellent. So there is kind of an ongoing support there um, for really low cost point or price point. Um, so that's hopefully coming. I'll, I'll share with your community. Uh, I know I get that question a lot. I, I sense you probably do too. Hopefully within yeah. the next, I guess, the thirty days or so. That's that's fantastic. Yeah, I really look forward yeah. to that and and uh, and help you pr promote it and get some access to it. Um, so is 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 the intention then? Is it realistic that someone who's under that two hundred fifty k threshold? And let's face it, there's a fair few of those who are under the six figure threshold. 
mm-hmm. and, and people uh, sort of um, managing on their own with a board. How many hours a week is it if someone's got, and I'll just, I'll just say like a quick books or equivalent and is trying to work their way through just their basic bookkeeping in their, their accounts, how many, how many hours should people set aside for that, that work or that function? Generally speaking, I know it's, I know it's a, it's hard to pick because you don't know exactly what type of nonprofit it is, but but there's got to be some transactions, you know, some costs and so on. I could see, let's, let's go with the, how long would it take me versus obviously how long it would take the, the, the person that I would envision trying to kind of get navigate through this. Right. I can completely see, um, if done every week, and that's that's an if, because usually it becomes procrastinating to task because you don't know how or you don't have time to do it. Um, right, so I'm going to say right. if you do it every week, which it generally doesn't, it falls further and further behind. But based on all the files I see on a regular basis, um, I could see where somebody that is not only teaching themselves kind of how to use QuickBooks, and it takes time and frequent practice to get pretty good at it as any database, mm-hmm. as you would imagine. Uh, I could see where that could take about five hours a week. If you're, let's say, less than 100,000, not a ton of activity. Um, It could take you about five, maybe 10 hours a week, depending on how quick you are with using the system and how um, detailed you want the system to be. Now, that would be doing kind of the the tasks appropriately. Uh, I could see where the right person might be able to whittle that down to five hours a month. Um, or less if they're really good but that means they need to really understand how to use the system and so a little bit of the challenge for small nonprofits, you have founders that generally have no business background no accounting background trying to teach themselves quickbooks so that takes a lot of time and even if you have a volunteer or especially a a board treasurer this happens oftentimes these are individuals that are in banking they likely have never used quickbooks they have no idea how to use quickbooks and they don't do that full time and they're not going to spend, you know, 40, 50 hours trying to figure out how to use the system. They're just going to try to keep, you know, keep up with their volume of transactions and those sort of things. So uh, that also takes them a little bit more time than, say, a bookkeeper that you have that's very experienced with these sorts of things. Um, and then, of course, you know, just getting it into the system and reconciling it doesn't necessarily mean it's in the same format that the IRS is going to ask for or your funders are going right. to ask for. So many times I see, yes, the information is into the system, but it's kind of a jumbled mess in the sense of how things are organized within that system. They're not categorized properly. They're not, uh, yeah. 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 Or allocated by the different functions. Many small organizations don't do that level of um, complexity within their accounting, although it does make it much easier at the end of the year. But usually they're just getting the volume of transactions. And more often than not, I see... You know, and I, I do, every time I talk to a nonprofit, I say, okay, let's, this is a no judgment zone. There's no shame here. Let's just talk about how far you are behind on a scale of one to 10. One, you can't sleep at night. You're worried that, you know, somebody's going to ask to look at your records. 10, you have no worries. Where are you usually at? And usually people are like a five, which probably means they're more like a three. So, <laughs> um, you know, that's not uncommon. Right. Right. Okay. So, um, we covered a lot of ground there. Thank you. I appreciate that because it's it is such a common concern. Uh, so yeah. I, I appreciate that. And and clearly, without uh, organizations like yourself, I'm not surprised about the rapid growth. Uh, it's probably uh, it taken you by surprise, only in so far as it wasn't something you planned. But I think we yeah. recognize <laughs> that the need was certainly uh, there. Yeah. Uh, so uh, so I'm um, so uh, you know on behalf of the sector, thank you. Thank you. Well, yes. (laughs) Initially, it was surprising. Now I realize it's almost overwhelming once you really open your mind to how big of a need this really is and how few people have committed to help solving this problem. It's a little bit overwhelming, to be honest. Um, But, you know, we'll continue to help as many people as we can. So, right. So let's let's turn to our, our our question: Why nonprofits need to make yeah. a profit? And a couple of things I think, in just to sort of frame this. Uh, number one, we don't really need to get into this, other than to sort of uh, state and park it. But there are a whole host of issues with money in our sector. I mean, money is is really a, a, a different beast for nonprofits than it mm-hmm. is for for profits. Um, I yeah. said we'll park it, but I'll give you at least an opportunity to respond to that because I, I imagine you. Again, you could probably talk for hours on, on this point uh, yeah. alone, but but just the the sort of 
uh, mystique around money or the you know fears around money, mm-hmm. uh, uh, intimidation around money. Not never mind the accounting side of it, but just just money mm-hmm. and funding in in general and revenues. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, there's definitely a lot that can be unraveled there, um, and I could give numerous case studies. But I think really to kind of summarize it, that an interesting kind of exercise that we did in March of 2020, my business partner and I, we went through every single one of our client files and we started calculating how much cash do all of our clients have on hand in terms of reserves. What is their liquid reserves? And if it's less than 30 days, meaning if they didn't get another dollar they would run out of cash within 30 days or less. We immediately went in triage mode. Now, here's what's really interesting about it. We, the nonprofits get beat up a lot. So I'm going to give them some credit where, where we're at right now. Um, and maybe it's a little bit of an indication, uh, you know, pain and investing to work with us. Maybe that is also a, a you know, a, a signal yeah. that they're doing things well or, or committed to doing things well, right? So when we ran that exercise out of, I think at the time, probably about 65, 70 clients, there were only less than, I think, 10 that had less than 30 days of cash. Now, compare that to what you were hearing in the media, and I use that word loosely, or just hearing kind of in your local community or all of your other friends that own businesses, especially restaurants. There are so many sectors that operate on such a lower margin of error uh, with respect to cash that within a month business were shuttered, right? So I think that we have to give some credit to the nonprofit space because we force ourselves to be a little bit more or a lot more responsible with saving money, which kind of dovetails into our conversation about profit. You can't ever have savings unless you have profit at certain points. Uh, But I I do want to give a big shout out to the nonprofit industry for that because we have only lost in the last year plus um, we've lost six clients. Four of those are related to um, COVID, which, to be honest, it, I'm going to shut my zoom up. I apologize for that. Um, I think is great, to be honest yeah. with you. A four yeah. out of 75, um, and the overwhelming majority of our clients. It wasn't an easy road, but they survived and in many cases thrived because we had to put ourselves in a position of worst case scenario. And people ask me, Tasha, why do the nonprofits do well? We operate in crisis every day. We are trained, whether it's our clients, whether it's the administration, we have to be reactive as much as we want to be proactive. Um, whether it's, you know, all of our disaster recovery plans and funding contingency plans and all of the things we live on pins and needles day in and day out. So we have to be as conservative as possible with our finances because we are forced to do that. Most businesses don't as an owner, sole proprietor, you don't force yourself into that mental exercise, but through, you know, good board governance, most of my clients, we go through that every year with our budget process. You know, who are we losing funding from? Who are we, you know, rather than just winging it and a hope and a prayer that we make it work, um, we have to do a lot of that contingency planning. So, um, yeah, I think that that, that is a big, uh, area where I think people get very stressed, but I think the stress that we put on ourselves has, um, benefited us during this time. So, yeah, I think the reserves question is, is, uh, an interesting one. Um, you know, you see debates in Facebook groups and so on about, uh, uh, or, or I should say the surprise, particularly for founders or smaller nonprofits who've not been working a, a reserve, even mm-hmm. now we are, you know, approaching mid 2021 and people are still questioning it, whether they need <laughs> a reserve, Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's even more important in nonprofits, as you said, because of the disconnect I mean, the genuine disconnect between the services we provide and the revenue mm-hmm. we get. Uh, yeah. And it's, you know, in, in distinction, uh, in addition to the distinction about the, the nonprofit status as a, as a tax status uh, mm-hmm. and not a business model, there is a business model implication in the sense that uh, for-profits have uh, a, 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 an exchange of money for the pro- for the goods or services that they provide. It's in a sense that they're they're they're, um, they're operating on a single signal stream. So I give you mm-hmm. a service and you give me money, and if I'm not selling enough, I can lower the price, I can change the right. quality, whatever you know, and, and adjust accordingly. And that's what your mm-hmm. business plan is for and your cash flow. But with mm-hmm. nonprofits, 
we have this one set of relationships and activities and information and partners for mm -hmm. our programs that are not bringing in money or, or at a very right. subsidized rate. And then separately, we have our revenue, which is a different set of partners, language, mm -hmm. information, activities, uh, and so on. And they don't sync up. Even if you're getting a grant for a program, it doesn't necessarily sync up with your yeah. expenditures or how you run your program. So, so, it's, so rep, re, you know, reserves are, seem to me even, even more important. Absolutely. And I, I tell people that really this whole designation status that the IRS gives is really just a gift in, I own a non-profit or for-profit business. I can charge money, have expenses, whatever's left over. Uncle Sam wants a you know, cut of it, which is fine. Um, that's the law. And then I can go spend it on whatever I want, right? I, I can go take my kid to Disney World if I feel like it. The nonprofit world is much different in that um, you're not going to have to pay taxes. And any surplus, you can then reinvest into your program in order to expand the impact on the community. So it's not so much that it's a profit per se, or it, it, both businesses should have a profit for expansion, for enrichment in their programs. Um, or just general motivation to keep doing whatever they're doing. It's just how the government views what you're allowed to do with it. I, as a for-profit business, I can do whatever I want. If I want to remodel my bathroom, no problem. The nonprofit world is, you know, obviously the founder can't just pull the proceeds and yeah, spend it on right. a bathroom remodel in the same sense. Yeah, it's, it's really, different. it's really, I think a better word would be non-private in the sense yeah. that you can't <laughs> take the surpluses or the profit pri into private hands. It has to remain. Exactly. In, exactly. in that in that in that organization, um, yes. but yeah. no organization is going to survive for very long if they're not bringing in more revenue than they're spending, mm -hmm. aka profit, or in some in some jurisdictions it's referred to as a surplus because yeah. it's not it's not again it's not in exchange for goods or services rendered, uh, mm -hmm. it's it's revenue brought in, in in other means. So it's so it's a surplus over what you spend. Yeah, exactly. A hundred percent. And really this profit, you know, a lot of times we talk about revenues and expenses and, and I look at profit and I like the word surplus because what I'm really looking at is cash flow. Um, and sometimes that word's like, wait, what do you mean? Uh, it's just, you know, it gets very intimidating business finances and, you know, corporate finances and, and people just kind of start their face just kind of glazes over. And I don't know what you're talking about, Tasha. And I just think of it, you know, just as you would in your personal life, you have to have more money coming in than you have going out. And if you don't have more money coming in than going out, then what ends up happening? You end up tapping into credit cards, maybe taking out a line of credit, borrowing against your house. You start to quickly put yourself in pretty vulnerable financial situations, right? That, right? that are really difficult to find your way out of. And I see many organizations that continue to finance their operations on borrowed money. And eventually you're going to have to pay that back. Just like, you know, all of us as private, right. you know, individuals, it, it's the same, it's the same concept. So when we talk about surpluses, we look at revenues and expenses, but I want to make sure I have more cash coming in than going out at any given time. And then you continue to accumulate that little, you know, surplus every single month to the point that you have at least 30 days of cash. I like to see it at least, you know, closer to 90 days, preferably. It all depends on your funding. I always tell people uh, six months is good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I would love to have that too. And then people will say, well, you know, the United Way or the Better Business Bureau or whatever says I only have to have 90 days. I'm going through this conversation right now with a client of mine. The thing is, you just have to develop a policy around it. So if you believe you need six months, then you have to have a justification for why you need that. And no one's going to really, I think, argue with you or penalize you for that. You just have to think about a well thought out um uh, yeah, there's no test. You know, it just has to be yeah. defensible because of your circumstances, and it's not it's not difficult to uh, describe why you'd want to Absolutely. be more conservative with your finances. Yet, really, I've yet to see a nonprofit that couldn't make that argument that six months. No <laughs> one's going to challenge a nonprofit now after what we've just been through over the last year. No one's going to challenge them on that. Um, you know, I had an organization I worked with that had you know 150 percent reserves, which means we could go through a year and a half before we ran out of money without, and people are, you know, the United Way is asking me, well, Tasha, you know, what, what are you going to do about that? Why, why do you have so much money? And the reality is we're very government dependent on funding, state, state level, right? And some states funding are very, yeah. some states are very um, 
cash strapped right now and you don't know if they're going to send you the check. And depending on your programming, you may not be able to pull the plug on your expenses. So think about medical facilities, right? They have staffing, they have patients they care for long term. They can't just throw them out on the streets. So you have to have a plan for that. And so we were able to easily justify why we needed, you know, an entire year's worth of cash on hand. Um, And we just kept modifying our policy accordingly. The other, the other element I think is that varies from, from nonprofit to nonprofit is the seasonality, if you will, uh, of when, when their money comes in. Uh, and, yeah. a, and, and if, for example, if you're relying on say county council contracts or state contracts, they may not be paying you every 30 days, uh, or, or every quarter, you might get it all, you know, in, in lumps at different times of the year, which makes it very That's difficult right. to plan your cash flow. And again, mm-hmm. why you might need 90 days just in year. I mean, nothing's going wrong, but you're just right. not getting the cash in through the door. Absolutely. And, and to expand upon that, a lot of times if we get a contract, we might have to actually get reimbursed those. So what we're talking about is employing people, paying for overhead, paying for supplies mm-hmm. or anything else, paying that for 30 days. At the end of the 30 days, we send an invoice we may not get our cash back for 60 days or more, depending on the funder. And if you continue to stack contracts up like that, which is frankly more often than not in in that sense, few people give you a large check, maybe a grant foundation or something like that. Right. Um, Right. But, um, you know, government contract, rarely do they give you money in advance. You have to get reimbursement for that. So you're looking at a, you know, at least a 45 to 60, sometimes even 90, depending on the state or the agency, mm-hmm. you know, recovery time in terms of getting costs reimbursed. So, and that's when it works yeah. as it should. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's not, that's no planning for contingency, which again, so exactly. if you're, if you're, if you're waiting, you know, you're hoping it's 90 days, then a six month reserve actually just really gives you operationally 90 days. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And to take it a step further, if you are an organization and you have funding like this and you don't necessarily have it in your mind, whether it's you as the founder CEO or whether it's your accountant or whoever, and they don't have it in their mind when these, usually these, especially government contracts and many sophisticated funders in the sense, whether it's local, state, federal, or, or private, um, will have regular payment schedules. And if you don't have that kind of a, at least a, a rough calendar in your mind, like on usually the 20th, we get paid by the state and the 23rd, we get paid by the USDA and, and usually the local government money comes in around like the 18th. Um, and then our funding partner, if you're getting passed through funds or whatever, if you don't know what those are, I strongly encourage you to figure out what those are because once you have an opportunity, a, a few days pass and you haven't seen those funds, especially if they're deposited or mailed to you. I like to be on the phone and closely monitor that because that may or may not affect your ability for processing payroll. Or if you have to tap on a line of credit, you're able to do that. Um, and, and hopefully we're all in a place where that's not as big of an issue. But the problem is those things can sneak up on you and compound really quickly. I had an organization that had about $400,000 in outstanding accounts receivable. They uh, had the revenue sources. They were cash strapped, broke, absolutely broke. And I, I took them on, um, even before I took them on as a client, I looked at the accounts receivable listing and I said to the CEO, I said, do you know you have $300,000 sitting out there in accounts receivable over 90 days, which means this is money owed to you that has taken at least three months to get in the door or longer. Some of these were six months, a year. No one was following up with these people. And oftentimes wow. what happens, which was the case in this scenario That when you submit invoicing to various funders, especially government, they have very rigid systems. And if there are billing issues, you have to have somebody that's, you know, really managing that process to make sure they're collecting money. And what happened in this case, the billing was incorrect. It was getting sent to the funder. So, you know, the CEO is like, well, I know the billing was sent off and I, 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 I know that we earned it. Um, well, they're probably not getting paid because there was an issue with billing and, nobody followed up with it and resolved yeah, it. Right. And so that kept just stacking up, stacking up, stacking up. Um, now, I, I don't know if we have anything over 90 days now. We've been working together about a year and a half. So oh, two years in June. But we don't have anything because we know when we're supposed to get paid. And we'll give them a day or two grace period. And then beyond that, we start to realize yeah. it might be a system glitch or a processing error or something. We're following up and figuring out why. 
Yeah, I, I, I had the same issue even as a consultant with uh, with county contracts and, and school districts mm -hmm. and so on. You, you, you oh, need yeah. to actually know the person in the accounts department who is processing your invoice uh, yes. uh, because if that person is off sick, your yep. your invoice could be delayed a week. If they get a new project or some other responsibility, you could be delayed. Or if there's some some question something that they need to question in your invoice, they put it on the I'll get back to this pile, and right. other things get on top of that pile, and it gets because it's buried yeah. and forgotten about. You know, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's very easy to happen, uh, and and mm -hmm. so you do need yes. to be uh, be uh, uh, you know be managing that. But but it also says to me that for the smaller nonprofits that are under that 250 threshold or a hundred thousand, or they're not really relying on uh, grants or, or, or government uh, contracts at whatever level of the government that the uh, incentive to have uh, individual donors, monthly donor programs and, and those sorts of things, not massive number of events, but, but routine donors that you've got personal relationships with is, is so vital uh, as a growth strategy, but then also as, if you will, insurance, when you, when you have reached the six figure level and you're getting those contracts yeah. and so on, that the way you're going to help make up some of those peaks and troughs with the, with the cash flow is by mm -hmm. having that steady stream of individual donors, uh, on which you can rely. And I think our COVID experience over the last year has, has demonstrated yeah. that the nonprofits who've done well have been able to pick up the phone and, uh, speak to those individual donors with whom they have relationships at least that's that's what i hear you know on a pretty routine basis from mm -hmm. from my clients and others in the sector you know i was talking with um kind of going back to something you said earlier about um sometimes founders and the debate about you know reserves and those sort of things and i was talking with a financial advisor yesterday uh, about something similar and i was a little reluctant to kind of advertise this because i think this would potentially be a uh, a topic for debate um, as you kind of alluded to earlier, but it sounds like the debate's already going, so I'll just say it. Um, it was interesting. He and I were talking about comparing financial statements of two animal shelters in this case, two animal shelters. And his role as a financial advisor for very wealthy people that want to make intentional gifts to you know specific missions. So his job is to go out and pull the tax returns and really analyze um, you know, the financial position of very similar organizations, right? If they're deciding who we're going to give the money to. And in some cases he pulls, for example, two animal shelters. One has a completely different financial situation than another one. And we were talking about a couple different scenarios. And I have a couple cases where I have two exact organizations, capacity, um, programming, general geographic area. Like there's really nothing significantly different other than the fact that those that really struggle financially, um, I don't want to say struggle financially, they don't have the really solid balance sheet that mm -hmm. uh, some of these other organizations have. They're ran by the founders. Uh, and the founders, I think, are just intentional about, you know, doing the mission, getting the work done. That's why they started it. And sometimes they are in a place where they've lent the money to an organization um, you know, through their personal credit cards or mortgage their house. I've seen many cases like this, or there are personal guarantees on a lot of this. They, they put themselves in really vulnerable financial situations for the betterment of the organization. But then what happens is every time the organization starts to generate a little bit of surplus, it, it's kind of, I see this game where we just, we, we shift money back to the founder and then the founder has to give money and then we shift money back. It's kind of like, yeah. uh, you know, charging on your credit card and you make a big payment and you don't have money to pay your groceries. So you got to put it back on your credit yeah. card and it's just this constant game. Founder is the and, credit card. Yeah. And so I really challenge founders and I'm a founder, so I can really empathize and relate to the commitment to the cause and the passion for it. But really, I think as founders, if we continue to, run the organization through the financial lens of how do I make this organization first and foremost, not dependent on my personal financing, right? right. So stop the transfer of money, make it self-sustainable. And two, generating a profit um, each year so that when you're ready to move from the organization that is not dependent on maybe your storytelling and your fundraising abilities or your personal financing or whatever... We want it to be mature enough to let it launch without us, right? right. I, I mean, I'm a founder. Sustainability well. is the whole point, you know. And this right. is why, this is why the mission, uh, you know, so the impact or the the organization uh, to work. It's an ultra ultra marathon, 
So you can't, mm-hmm. you can't go at it as a, as a sprint. And, and, and that's, you know, that's just not your financial uh, resources. That's all your resources. You know, we right. talked at the very beginning about, you know, that sort of work-life balance. Uh, and and mm-hmm. it's very easy to go down that uh, that down that track saying, well, we'll do whatever it takes, which is often yeah. a recipe for failure because you don't have yeah. limits that force you to make the decisions you need to to put it on a sustainable footing. Uh, yeah. Which you know I think is uh, you know it's a, more of an issue around time rather than 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 profit, but the, mm-hmm. you know the sustainability is the issue here, really, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And I, I can empathize with that because in my business, I'm constantly thinking. If Tasha didn't show up for and this, I've been on this marathon for, you know, probably two years. If, if for some reason Tasha was unavailable or could not show up to work for some you know period of time, how long would this business continue to run without me? And I would say the same for any type of business, even especially the nonprofit world. And so often I see, you know, just wanting to do more and more and more and more from the mission. And I completely empathize with that but to the sacrifice of the financial position, which means they're hanging on by a thread. And unfortunately, they're passed up by funding opportunities because they look at these situations and see this might be a sinking ship. I want to invest into organizations that likely have had a couple generations of leaders at that point. Now they are older, so I will I will address the elephant in the room. These organizations yeah. maybe are more mature. They've been around longer. They've had more time to save up the money. And that could be true. Absolutely. But let's set the best tone and give a really good role model for being good financial stewards. And if nothing else, getting it sustainable to the point that you don't have to keep lending the organization financially. And if you're in a position where you've been doing this for years, I've seen people they've wiped out their 401ks, they've mortgaged off their houses, they've maxed out their personal credit cards, you just have to figure out a way, is this really going to be sustainable? And there's just a certain yeah. point as much as we are committed to the cause that this is just going to personally cripple you. And how is the yeah. organization ever going to recover? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So plan um, for a profit. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, I, I mean, it's a separate question. Um, we don't have time to necessarily dive into, but I just want to, I just want to note you, some, you said uh, that uh, people who are looking at substantial gift opportunities as donors uh, will have uh, a look or, or or ask someone to have a look at 990s. And I wonder how many founders or or EDs or even board uh, members and board chairs and treasurers are cognizant of the fact that prospective donors are evaluating them through their 990s. Uh, and, and if they're thinking of that as they prepare those 990s, uh, do you find that uh, your clients are surprised to learn that potential donors are, are examining their 990s and what it says about them? You know, I've never had a, a nothing that comes off of my mind. I assumed I'm an accountant, though, so I'm a little bit of a biased person right. in that sense. You know I, the 990s, I look at 990s. Right? I, I mean, I, I'm a bit I of a geek too. With, I'm a bit of a so, 990s geek too, so I've looked at uh, I think hundreds most of them. nonprofits. <laughs> yeah, I think most profit most nonprofits probably assume that it's public information. People will likely look at them if they want to. But I don't know if people realize that wealthy individuals that are really trying to do some, you know, major planning and, you know, uh, you know, long-term strategy with their gifts are comparing organizations that in their minds they perceive to be very similar and can't reconcile why one organization in this particular case had less than 30 days of cash and another organization, I don't even know how much, I mean, significantly more than they even needed to. They were just complete night and day and they may not have all of the story, but we need to have a really good explanation and a justification for how did they get there and you get there. So if you are an organization, you can go um, to your guide star, the IRS website and pull organizations that maybe in your mind, you would consider similar programming as as yourself and start comparing how do these things match up uh, from the revenue diversity but then also what a lot of these donors are going to be looking at on the balance sheet, meaning what assets do you have? Who do you owe? What's left right. over? You know, how do things look financially? Yeah. And obviously donors want to know, and particularly at that scale as investors, they want to know that you've got your act together. Uh, but yeah. there, is a, there is a nuance here in terms of the motivation for giving because some people also want to uh, solve the problem. 
So, you know, if they feel they can make a, a substantial gift to get someone out of a hole, that might actually motivate them. So it's not, you know, it's not a, you know, pure yeah. uh, binary situation, but in any yeah. case, um, we'll, 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 we'll leave it there. We've run out of time. Thank you so much, uh, Tasha. It's been a fantastic conversation um, yeah. around uh, nonprofit accounting. Uh, so to remind people again, uh, you're on, you're on most social media, but the, the name of your website again and, and how people can find you. Yep. It's the charity CFO.com. And you can also find me on any social platform with the same handle at the charity CFO. Okay. Excellent. And you've got a free course and a, and a low ticket $29 course coming out in the next, uh, so let's just say mid May or towards the end yeah. of May, uh, 2021. Excellent. Yeah. And the best way, the best way to keep tabs on that, um, follow me on social, of course, we'll be promoting it there. Um, but also if you go to our website, just subscribe to our newsletter and we're giving people updates as I get updates from the developers. So if you so just go to our website, subscribe to our newsletter and you'll get uh, the first communication as soon as it's launched. Yeah. And of course I will promote it as well. Is it, it's, it's bound to be good okay. value. Okay. So uh, thank you so much for that. We're going to move over to uh, mingle mode, which if you're watching this on, on, uh, on replay, uh, you won't be able to participate in, but uh, the, uh, the folks here in uh, who are live, who want to have a, a, a further chat with myself and Tasha, we will see you in a moment. You may need to refresh your screen. Uh, if uh, when we, when we um, uh, end the live, if, uh, if you see a spinning wheel, just uh, refresh your screen and, and we'll see you at tables in just a moment. Thanks everyone. We'll see you next week on nonprofit problem solver. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast. My guest today was Tasha Anderson from thecharitycfo.com, who you can find all over the web if you Google The Charity CFO. This podcast has been expertly produced by Glenn Munoz at PodPro Audio, making professional podcasting easy. Go to podproaudio.com. You can join future conversations live by visiting nonprofitproblemsolver.com. Connect with Kev on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. For more information, visit kevkayak.com because good causes deserve better results.